Psalm 63. Um, as I was considering what to teach on uh, today, this verse is one that I've been praying for myself and for my family, for our, our friends and church family. And so it just really stuck with me, and I wanted to dig in and to learn more about it and how David could have this confident hope and expectation years before the Messiah had been born. And so I wanted us to look at it together. Um, turns out it's a favorite hymn, not just of mine, but of the ancient church as well. Um, one of the early church leaders from the late 300s to the early 400s in what's now Turkey, John Chrysostom, said that in the early church, they would sing this psalm to each other every morning, not every Sunday morning, but every morning before they started their day, they would cry out, Oh God, you are my God. Also, when they were rediscovering the Word of God during the time of the Reformation and translating it into all the modern languages, um, one of John Calvin's friends, Theodore Beza, he translated the Psalms from um, their original Hebrew into French and into Latin. And this was his favorite psalm to recite to himself as he struggled night after night with sleeplessness. He would sing it over and over again to himself to remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God. So as we prepare to read Psalm 63 and fix our firm hope on Christ, um, let's take a moment and pray together. Gracious Father, we gather this morning asking that you allow your word to speak into our hearts. Many of us have come into this building feeling that our, our hearts are in a difficult place. We need you to refresh us. We need satisfaction the world can't provide. Father, we thank you this thirst to be satisfied fully is actually a gift from your Holy Spirit. Thank you that this Psalm 63 gives us the words to cry out to you in hope. May you even deepen our longing that you may deepen our satisfaction in you alone. We ask for your spirit to open our hearts to understand more of you. We ask for your spirit to equip us, to encourage us, to be doers of your word and not merely hearers only who so deceive themselves. And we praise you, God that every promise of your word is true. Help us to seek you and find you when we search for you with all of our hearts, that we may be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to the eternal glory of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, let's read together Psalm 63, a confident song of hope amidst trouble. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. 
and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. And so we find here a confident song of hope amidst great trouble. David's soul is thirsting for God. His soul will be satisfied to God because his soul clings to God. And so our souls, too, will rejoice in God. You'll see the points that I'm going to draw out as you read through the text. When you come to the words, my soul, you'll see those in verse 1 through 4, beginning with, my soul thirsts for my God. And so that will be our focus as we go throughout the passage, to learn how our soul can thirst for God, be satisfied in God, cling to God and rejoice in God, no matter the circumstances. And, and when I do say no matter the circumstances, I, I pray I don't come off as sounding flippant or, or calloused. We live in a world where the suffering of those who would follow hard after Christ is very real. I uh, don't have to recite the news to you to know that things are challenging in our state. Things are challenging in our country. For Christians all around the world, the persecution that they face. The Psalms contain 42 different songs of lament. 30 of those are individual, but a dozen of them are corporate. For us to together sing and cry out and lament to God, sin has broken this world and ourselves, and we lament it. It is a healthy practice to lament and cry out to God. But as 1 Thessalonians 4.13 reminds us, we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so though Psalm 63 predates the birth of Jesus as a man, it exudes that same confident hope and expectation that God is near to us, that we will be his children forever. And so David says, my soul will be satisfied in my God. My soul will rejoice in my God. My soul clings to my God, and together our souls will rejoice in God. So the context of this psalm is interesting. David, it says, is in the wilderness of Judea. He is fleeing from his life. He's been anointed king over all of Israel, but Israel has turned their backs on their chosen king and now pursue him and seek to put him to death. The very fact that when we say David's fleeing from his life in the wilderness of Judea refers to more than one time period in David's life tells us something about the life of those who follow hard after God, doesn't it? That we should expect Jesus' words, take heart for in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world, should be our expectation not a huge surprise when we encounter resistance or difficulty or circumstances that are not what we want or not what we desire. Um, 
The language of verse 11 indicates this is likely when he's fleeing from his son, his heir. Remember the promise that Brian read for us, that his heir would come behind and worship God and lead the people to worship God, to build the temple, to praise him. And yet it is the heir who has committed a great sin. Absalom didn't learn from David's sin with Bathsheba. Instead, he celebrated in it. Um, on the rooftop of the palace with all of his father's concubines so the whole nation could see this sin of David's multiplied over and over. And so David now is barred from the throne. He's barred from Jerusalem, the city of God. He's barred from the sanctuary where they worship God together. His son, who should have been leading the people in worship, is multiplying sin. And maybe he feels all of his life's work has been swept away in a few moments. And so he cries out, grieving the devastation of sin. But he doesn't cry out for the city. He doesn't cry out for the throne. He cries out, Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs and faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And he turns his mind back. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power, beholding your glory, because, not circumstances, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I lift up my hands. This hope is a response to that covenant promise we read in 2 Samuel 7, but also that God gave to his people during the Exodus. Exodus 6, 7a, God says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. No if you do this, no when you do that. I, God, am promising this to you. And so David cries out here in a very personal way. Um, we find this declaration that you are my God several times throughout the Psalms. I won't read them all, but I'll survey a few in hopes they help us to focus our attention on our God this morning. Um, so listen along with me. I'll read just a few selections. Psalm 31, 13 through 15, David writes, They plot to take my life, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Psalm 86, 1 through 3 says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. Psalm 143, 9 through 11 says, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. There's many others I could have read where David repeats this same phrase, you are my God. He's crying out to remind himself of what is eternally true when the situations around him have stripped away those gifts of God that seem so good and seem so right. He reminds himself that God is faithful when we can't see all of his promises coming true in our life in this moment. It's 
It's a very personal plea. Oh God, you are my God. And to me, it seems it summarizes this progression of I saw my mother's faith, and I recognized that was a good thing. I saw how it changed her and shaped her, and I started to want some of her faith for myself. But it wasn't until I repented of my sin and believed in what Christ had done that I could call out, God, you are my God. Not just a God or her God, but my God. It reminds me of David's great-grandmother, Ruth, when she had lost her husband, her only means of income and support. She pledged, Ruth 1.16, to Naomi, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. Now, Ruth, as a foreigner, probably didn't know all that it meant to worship God in Israel, but she saw what God had done in Naomi's life, and she wanted that for herself. You, too, may not know all that it means to walk with God this morning, but if you've seen the power of God, you've seen his work in other people's lives, and you want that for yourself, know it can be yours when you accept the Lord your God to call upon him to save you from your sin, to repent of it and to walk not for yourself, but with him. We have an unwavering hope in this promise from Deuteronomy 31.6. It is the Lord who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so David calls out, oh God, you are my God. Ruth called out, your God will be my God. It is a call that David knows God personally. He knows him intimately. And he's crying out to him, not because he thinks God is somehow far away or unsearchable or hiding behind a rock somewhere, but because as humans, our hearts get easily distracted. The things that we know to be eternally true, we have to remind ourselves of, we have to refocus on again and again. On Sunday mornings, yes, but in the morning when we wake, refocusing our mind on God. And so David cries out, oh God, you are my God. And it seems to escalate from there. He starts with earnestly I seek you, and then my soul thirsts for you, and then my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's seeking, he's thirsting, he's even fainting, not to be delivered from these terrible circumstances, but to find again the presence and the comfort of God for himself. I don't know, maybe some of you have felt, as I did this week, that this land that we live in can be dry. It, it can be weary. It can wear us down. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that the language of Psalm 63 gives us a voice, gives us language that we can use to cry out to our God and say, you are my God, even in a dry and weary land. I know that it is true. The fact that we thirst for God, it shouldn't cause us distress or to be upset. Instead, the fact that we thirst and hunger and even faint for God should be a comfort. Now, why is that? Feeling thirsty, feeling faint is not a comforting thing. But it is a sign that God is already at work in your heart. He wants to be found by you. 
And so he plants in you a desire, a thirst, a hunger, even a fainting for him. This is not the normal pattern for people. Your thirst and your longing doesn't grow out of your natural self. Um, we've heard a few weeks ago Romans 3.10. None of us is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. All of us have turned aside. You know, a lot of us, um, especially in this culture, we tend to get this backwards. When you talk to other people about their spirituality or how they feel about God, they get this idea that they're the ones searching for and seeking out that maybe they'll find God somehow if they read all these different books or try all these different religions. But that's not what we see in the Bible. We don't see a group of sheep organizing a search party to go out and look for a wayward shepherd, right? We don't see Adam and Eve fully aware of the impact of their sin, beating the bushes, looking for a shame-faced God hiding from them. That is not the pattern of Scripture at all. When we thirst for God, it is evidence that God is at work in our life. You know, there's a lot of people that feel this world as a dry and weary place, and they try to satisfy that thirst in all sorts of different ways. But it is a gift that none of those ways will quench our thirst but God alone. And so that thirst should lead us to worship. As it says in verse 2, Psalm 63, 2, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up your hands. You know, this is no figure of speech that your love is better than my life. David is literally being pursued with people actually trying to kill him. The end of his life may be very soon for all he knows. But his focus is not on changing the circumstance. It's not on regaining his crown or his throne. As much as he wants the people of Israel to worship God, his focus first is on reminding himself, Oh God, you are my God. I will praise you. We might think it unusual that at a time where everything seems to be stripped away, all the things that he had worked so hard for taken from him, that his first response would be, to praise God. But the truth is, all of us, all humans, are designed to praise. All of us are built to worship, to express our longing for what we truly desire. When all is lost, it's far too common for people to rail against God. God, how could you do this to me? God, why did you let this happen? Or to echo some of the scripture that we hear, the counsel of Job's wife to her husband was, will you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But the child of God should respond from Job 13, 5, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The child of God responds with Psalm 63, 4, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so David's deep longing, his searching, his thirsting, his hungering and fainting confronts me with a question. What is it that I really want? David wants not the love of his people, 
but the love of his God. His soul thirsts not to be made king again, but for God. What about me? What about us? That is what worship reveals. We worship the one thing we really want, what matters most, what's of highest value in our lives. And so Ligon Duncan writes about the object of worship. That thing may be a relationship or a dream or a position or a status or something you own or a name. Maybe it's a job or some kind of pleasure. But whatever name you put on that thing, this thing is what you've concluded in your heart is what is worth most to you. And what is worth most to you is what you worship. Worship is, in essence, declaring what you value most. And as a result, worship, it fuels all of our actions. It becomes the driving force of all that we do. Every person on the planet worships something. There's a multitude of souls proclaiming with every breath what is worthy of their affections, their attention, their allegiance, proclaiming with every step what it is they worship. So how is it that I weigh my soul to know whether my soul thirsts for God? How do you expose what you worship? Well, you follow the trail of your energy, of your attentions, what excites you, the thing for which you'll place other priorities on hold for a while to make it more important in your life. If you follow the trail of your money and your effort and the experiences that you seek at the end, you will find a throne where you bow and where you worship. Now, few people would say, I worship my family. I worship my job. I worship my hobbies and my experiences. I worship my comfort and my plans for the future. But the trail of our energies and our priorities, it doesn't lie. We may say we worship God above all else Sunday morning, but our actions speak louder than our words. Now, I have to say, I really think I would be missing the point here if I said, okay, so the application is now work up all your energy and focus hard on God and just pour your effort into seeking Him and denying yourself of anything that's not spiritual. The point is, we worship God because the power of God is at work in us to draw our attention away from all these competing attractions to Him alone. That is the power of God at work in our life. Our efforts to be more religious, to be more spiritual, they would fail. God's efforts will never fail. So we should rejoice in hope, when we find a thirst, when we find a hunger, when we find a longing, we should praise God that he is removing our eyes from those other distractions and fixing them on his eternal work that will stand and will not, then will not ever fail. So David declares, you can have my throne, you can have what I've worked for, I will seek my God. I thirst, I hunger, I faint because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. For it is in God alone, his children, or all of God's creation, can find satisfaction. My soul thirsts for my God. That was the longest point. Second point, verses 5 through 7. My soul will be satisfied 
with God. Because David doesn't just thirst for God. He proclaims, my soul is satisfied in God, even when all of God's gifts are taken away. So you'll see, starting in verse 5 of Psalm 63, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. In the Treasury of David, Charles Spurgeon writes, There was no desert in his heart, though there was desert all around him. And isn't that what we want to be said about ourselves? When we go out to our workplaces or to interact with our family, with our neighbors, don't we want them to be drawn to the fact that though we live in a desert where everyone can agree it is dry, it is weary, but there's no desert in her heart. There's no desert in his heart. Why is that? What is the reason for the hope that you have in you? David's longing points the way to our only source of satisfaction. He longs for God because he treasures God and finds satisfaction in the union with, though he did not know the Christ name at that time, he knew he would come to save him. And that leads him to praise God. That leads him to draw others to praise God with him. In a world where earthly satisfaction constantly, continually underwhelms, it holds up the mirror to us. What do I treasure? What do you treasure? Well, what do you long for? So the connection you see in verse 1, my soul thirsts for you, and in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now, David is king. He knew all about earthly pleasures, fat and rich food, worldly comforts. But he also knew that satisfaction in God is so much deeper. And so he is willing to hunger, to thirst, even to faint as he seeks true satisfaction in God alone. So he longs, he casts his mind back to when he has seen God at work in the sanctuary, his power and his glory. And then before his circumstances change at all, he praises God. He blesses God with his lips. Knowing that his soul, even if not in this moment, his soul will be satisfied. And that is a gift from God. You know, I'm tempted to get this backwards a lot of times. I want to skip the seeking, the thirsting, the fainting. I want to be satisfied right here, right now, and then, God, you give me that satisfaction. Now I'm going to turn and praise you. I'm tempted to do that far too often, but that is not the pattern in this psalm. That is not the pattern of scripture. I, I don't think I'm alone in this, struggling to praise God continually in every circumstance. C.S. Lewis wrote in Reflections on the Psalms that he had been struggling with the idea of, does God really want us to endlessly praise him and tell him how great he is? I wouldn't want a pastor like that. Why would I want a God like that? But he realized his stumbling block was a misconception, a misunderstanding of what praise is. And so C.S. Lewis writes, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. 
I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings of praise. Walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game on Sunday afternoon, right? Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, sometimes even politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise the most. They spontaneously urge us to join them in that praise. They'll say things like, wasn't it glorious? Don't you find it magnificent that? I think we delight to praise because we in what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but it completes the enjoyment. As the shorter Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall know that these are the same things. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So if you came today with a thirst, with a search, with a hunger for God to show up in your circumstances, don't see it as a burden to be cast off. It is an invitation from a gracious God to glorify and be satisfied in Christ Jesus alone. Use the language of Psalm 63 to join him in affirming, my soul will be satisfied in my God. That brings us to verse 8. My soul clings to my God. My soul thirsts for my God. My soul will be satisfied in my God. My soul clings to my God. All right, so young people, if your parents ask you on the way home, what was the sermon about today? I do this to my kids all the time. Here's what you can do. You can summarize the entire chapter in one verse, one sentence that you can remember on the way home to talk about over lunch or this week with your friends, right? You ready for it? Here's the summary for the whole chapter. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. These verses summarize all of Psalm 63. The Hebrew word used here for cling, dabaka, it's used all throughout Deuteronomy, and it's translated often as hold fast. Deuteronomy 10, 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear, he is your praise, he is your God. You know, it's actually the same word that is used in the verse in Ruth I quoted earlier. Naomi clung, or Ruth clung to Naomi. It's even the same word Job's wife used to needle him. Will you hold fast to your integrity? Just curse God and die. We see it throughout Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews loves the Greek version of this word. And I've got four different references in here. I won't read them all, but Hebrews 3, 6 he talks about, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Hebrews 3.14, 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence in him to the end. Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of when we take a dish to degroup and you put the cling wrap over the top. I can't ever get that stuff to stick to the glass bowl, but if the cling wrap sticks to other cling wrap, it'll hold fast. Or if you've ever been packing up and you get the scotch tape or um, even worse, the duct tape, and then before you get it on the box, it sticks to itself, well, you're going to have to throw that away and get another piece. Because once the two sides of that adhesive tape cling together to itself, you're not going to be able to pull it back apart and put it on the box anymore. It is held fast for good. It can no longer be used to adhere to anything else because those two sides are held fast together. I wish I could say that was my normal experience of clinging to God, but, but really, what I experience a little more often is, have you ever seen a toddler who has just had it with their mom? and they are using their arms and their legs and all their force to just push away. I do not want you to hold me right now. Um, I know my kids did this. I'm sure I did, though I don't remember. When they would just throw their whole body weight back. What? It, had they gotten their way, they would have somersaulted head first onto the ground and been really hurt. But somehow they knew, mom's got me. I just want mom to know I want my way right now and not your way, and I want you to know all about it. But how that disposition changes when some stranger walks up and wants to see the baby, or a strange animal, or there's some loud noise, suddenly mom's grasp hasn't changed at all. But that toddler is clinging and holding on for dear life. Suddenly, now that they realize they're frightened. Something's not right. I want to cling. I don't want to be separated as previously when I wanted to go my own way. Mom's graphs never changed. It's only the babies. And I think we as believers, I know I certainly am tempted to treat God the same way. I've just learned to better disguise it from others when I have those willful desires to do things my way instead of God's way rather than clinging fast to God. You know, the founder of the Proclamation Trust, Richard Lucas, asks, what is the sign that God is holding on to me? It's not necessarily that I feel safe. On the contrary, it's because I do not feel safe every day, I have to cling to him. The very fact I have to cling to him is a sign he is holding me. It's a paradox. It's hard to get, but it's important. Have you got an intense desire to stay true to God, to adhere to Him, to stick to Him through thick and thin, to be loyal to Him and to His covenant and to His people? Are you frightened lest you should not cling to God? Then God is holding you. It's the kind of clinging that came after the wrestling when God so easily touched Jacob's hip to make him crippled. But Jacob has to say, I will not let you go until you bless me. 
to become Israel, to be part of those who have been made to cling. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for my God. My soul will be satisfied in my God. My soul clings to my God. Now consider verses 9 through 11. We will rejoice in our God. Psalm 63, 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David switches it up here. He's been saying, my soul, my soul, my soul. And now he says, the king will rejoice in God. That's a little different. He wants us to find a tension, a counterpoint, a juxtaposition. And he says three things about those who have denied God's choice as king. He says, one, they will go down into the depths of the earth. That is, they will die. Two, they will be given over to the power of the sword. That is, the violence in the world or battle. And three, the mouths of liars will be stopped. God will put an end to all lies. Now, David doesn't have worldly assurances that he'll live to see those things. But as he's writing in the spirit, it is exactly what happens to those pursuing him when you read 2 Samuel. Um, but his focus is not on how to regain his throne, not how to get back to the sanctuary, not even how he might convince Israel to turn again and hope in God. He is certain, not that his circumstances will change, but that God will deliver his justice. God will fulfill his promise. And so that makes me pause and ask myself, when things get tough, what am I certain of, even if I don't think I'll be around to see it? When things go completely off the rails, what do I do? Who do I trust? Am I tempted to trust my wisdom, the well-made plans I've made for my future, my fallback plans, my safety net? Do I trust in friends and family who have always been there for me? Do I trust in God alone? You know, David trusts in God in this dire circumstance because, because of that trust, he is able to rejoice in the middle of this. He is able to hold fast to God's promise that his chosen people, who right now are rebelling, seeking even to kill God's chosen king, will again exult in God, not because of David's efforts, or not because of the circumstances to change, but because God has promised. So verses 9 through 11 contrast those who seek to oppose God with this godly king we read about in 2 Samuel 7 by saying, the king trusts in God rather than my soul trusts in God. He interrupts our flow to make a point. Yes, David, as God's anointed king, he trusts in God. But it also reminds us of that covenant promise. Second Samuel seven thirteen, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is not what David's heir appears to be doing at that moment. And David knows God's promise 
will be true, even if it doesn't look like it right now. And that allows him to rejoice in God and to lead others to swear by God, as he was commanded in Deuteronomy 6.13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve him, and by his name you shall swear. Even if David doesn't live to see it, he believes in Christ this promise will come true. And in Christ Jesus, the promise is not just for Israel anymore, is it? It's extended beyond David's people to all who would repent and believe in Jesus. Romans 10, 11 through 12, many of you know it well. Romans 10, 11 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved David knows God's promise cannot will not fail he knows he will not be the only one to worship and rejoice in God all alone by himself he knows that God's people will exult in rejoicing God again because that is the work, that is the power of God in each of them and in each of us who have repented and believed. And so Psalm 63 shows us this experience of thirsting, of searching, of fainting, even when all of God's gifts seem to be removed from us, is a gift We've been given so much, you know, in our culture as children of God. It's easy for us to trust in and sometimes even prefer the gifts, the freedoms, the privileges, the blessings that God has given us over the giver. And so David's heartfelt cry here is for the giver alone. He doesn't mention the restoration of his kingdom, his relationship with his son. He doesn't mention um, the return of Israel to worship God again, first and foremost, he pleads for his soul to remember his God. He thirsts, he faints, he yearns for God himself, the only one who will satisfy. And, and isn't that how God has built us? Our hearts are restless till they rest in him. David tried the pleasures of the world, Solomon did, others have tried all of these earthly pleasures. And yet, they don't satisfy in the way that we know we're built and meant to be satisfied. We shouldn't seek the gifts so much as the giver. James 1.17 says, For every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, if you are a child of God, be encouraged this thirst, this hunger, this fainting that you feel, it's not some burden to be quickly rid of. It is the evidence of God continuing to work in your life to draw your heart's affection to Him. Be encouraged. Your clinging to Christ is not effectual because of your strength or your continuation in it. It is His right hand who upholds you. The God who created the whole world not by using his strength but simply speaking, 
He uses the strength of His right hand to uphold you who cling to Him. That is His work. Also, if you're a child of God, you should expect deep and lasting satisfaction, though maybe not in this world. Remember, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Remember also the great and those intimate deeds that God has done in your life to be able to turn your heart back to him in any circumstance, to praise him not when the circumstances has changed, but through the midst of it. If we truly believe that this world is temporary and Christ's kingdom is eternal, let's remind ourselves as we prepare to start every day, this world is passing away. God's salvation is not. When we're tempted to trust in anything other than God or seek the end of our trouble before we praise God, hold fast to the knowledge you are held securely by God in Christ forever. But I don't take for granted that all of us in this room are feeling that way. Maybe this doesn't sound like your experience at all. Maybe there's circumstances in your life that leave you feeling distant from God or asking, God, how, how did you let this happen? Why would you do this to me? Would you confess to God this morning your need for him is even greater than your desire for his gifts? or a change in your circumstances? Would you pray and ask God to help you understand his heart even if you don't fully understand his ways? Remember, the troubles that we face in this world, they're gonna pale in comparison to the judgment of God against unbelief. This world is fleeting. Christ is faithful. He gives everlasting life to those who place their life fully in his hands. And if you want to give all of your life to gain all of Christ, I would encourage you to confess your sin, repent, and believe in Christ's perfect life poured out on the cross, his resurrection to show his power and glorify the Father. would love to talk with you, to pray with you after the service or, or throughout this week as you seek to know Christ, to follow him. And so I pray for all of us, whatever our circumstances this morning, that God helps us discern between the gifts and the giver, and that he would strengthen us to choose the giver. Matthew 6, 24 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. May our souls thirst for God. May our souls be satisfied in our God. May our souls cling to our God. And may our souls together rejoice in our God. Please join me as we pray. Father God, we know the experiences and circumstances of this world. They leave us so dry and weary while we do desire for you to put right the sin and the wrong in this world, we desire even more you, your presence. Our awareness that you are not far off hiding, but that you are the one who gives us a longing to seek after you. Father, we 
pray that we will humble ourselves to seek your face, that we might repent of our sin and hold fast to this confident hope that David had in Psalm 63, a thousand years before the Jesus we know so well now, that your promise will never fail, that you, Lord God, will satisfy and sustain in a way no one and nothing else ever could. Help us to repeat the words of Psalm 63 to ourselves this week as we place our confident hope and our expectation in the God in whom we rejoice and celebrate and praise. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and only Savior, we pray. Amen.